This episode is brought to you by Selby Anderson, the marketing group that helps businesses in complex markets win the future. Hello, unicorners. Wow, have we got a treat for you today. So whatever you're doing now, stop it. You cannot multitask and take in all of the learnings that you are about to get today. So please, whatever you're doing, stop it. Today, we have the amazing Adam Morgan. He is the Strategy, Marketing and Communications Director at Premium Credit, the billion pound company you didn't know you didn't know. It's highly likely that you've used them at some stage in your life. You just don't know it. Now, Adam is being joined by my co-host today, Dave Rolf from CRM Agency Burn, because we are going to talk about customer relationship management. And we're going to talk about the journey that you go on to find your purpose. Now, this really is great content. So please, if you're in the marketing business, if you're trying to identify your why, if you want to understand how to optimize your sales funnels better, don't go away. Unicorns, they're supposed to be rare, but they seem to be everywhere. Now, like you, I suspect, I devour business and marketing books. But if you've noticed, more and more of them use the same reference material and they retrofit the strategies and tactics they're espousing to unicorns. Well, you know what? I'm bored of reading about unicorns. So what if Amazon thinks back to front? Why is it relevant to me that Steve Jobs started with why? Google, Facebook, Netflix, those guys, you know, it's not where I live professionally and it doesn't inform my future. So I thought, why don't I do something about it? Why not create a body of reference material that ordinary marketers like me can contribute to and learn from. And that is Unicorny. It's great to be with you again. And today I'm joined by the fabulous Dave Rolf from Burn as my co-host. Hi, Dave. Hi. How's everything going? Yeah, very well, I think, actually. We've got a really exciting day ahead. But before we get there, why don't you tell me a little bit about Burn and you, just so that everyone listening knows who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Dave, as Dom said, um, Managing Director of Burn. Um, Burn, a multi-award winning, I would say that, um, results-focused CRM agency. Uh, we're relationship marketing specialists. We've got years of experience across a multitude of sectors from charity, travel, finance, subscription, um, in my past life, lots of luxury experience and many, many more. Um, and we like the fact that we're not specialists because it allows for cross-fertilization of ideas from the different segments rather than being pigeonholed in one, whether that's travel or charity. Um, we really like to focus on using engagement to drive and build rewarding relationships between brands and their customers. And the way we deliver that is through data and insight and using that to really enable us to get under the skin of customers and know what makes them tick, what motivates them, what their needs are, and and build our strategies and creative out the back of that and using technology to deliver that and to enable us to um, get the right customers to raise their hand and acquire those customers where appropriate, nurture them through the sales journey, ensure that they do purchase. And then once we've got them on board, make sure that we are reducing to and maintaining those customers and actually trying to maximize revenue from those customers. And so it's all through data insight, comms planning and creative, all to really focus on building relevance, building relationships, really creating resonance with them so that we come, we become a little bit more sticky in one of their brands, which will all lead to better engagement and better results. And that's particularly relevant today because Adam is going to talk to us about the process that they went through a little bit, I think, with their own customer journey mapping. Um, they've got a particular challenge, of course, that their product is 100%, well, pretty much 100% intermediated. So they're relying on other people, either technology or physical people, to sell their product for them. Is that an environment in which um, you guys have got a lot of experience too? Yeah, we've got, we've, we're very definitely not pigeonholed into one sector, as I said. So we have, yes, we've got a lot of um consumer experience with brands like Celebrity Cruises and building very big CRM programs for them. We've also done a lot of B2B with um, and, well, a number of FS companies, but also Pipedrive, who are a CRM organization in their own right. Um, and it, it, is, it is basically about understanding what the objectives are, what you are trying to achieve, what you want, whether you're talking to consumers or talking to organizations, what you want them to do, what they want from the relationship and building an appropriate value exchange and a communication program out the back of it that really drives them through the stages. So with 
with one of our clients, the problem they had was that people were hand raising, starting a trial, and then were just getting forgotten for a month. And so at the end of the month's trial, they were disappearing. And what we had to do was build a an automated trigger-based program so that when they they opted in to have a trial, they got a communication that said, okay, your logical next step is this, try this. They'd try that step. If they did that, they then get another communication, either through the system as a pop-up or via an email to say, that's great, that worked really well, have you tried this? But then also if they weren't doing it, um, there's, there's positive... Um, there's positive journeys and negative journeys. And so we had to make sure that we covered all those through to make sure that during the month's trial, they experienced all of the different aspects of the product. Because without that, they just weren't going to take the product up. Okay, cool. Well, that's, um, look, listener, now you know why I needed to be joined by Dave, because this is an area that's way outside my area of expertise. But let's, uh, let's get Adam online and let's hear what he's got to say about the initiatives that he's been running at Premium Credit. Good morning to you, Adam. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. Well, you're very welcome. And um, Dave and I are very much looking forward to this. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about Premium Credit, please, Adam? Sure. Um, okay, so Premium Credit uh, is a what predominantly is a provi- premium finance provider. Um, we also have components of our business called Specialist Lending, which is uh, the payment of uh, sort of fees for schools or golf clubs, um, tax fees and some other pieces as well. Um, we started out uh, just over 30 plus years ago and um, have pretty much been growing steadily um, for the last 30 years. Um, we now have just over 2.1 million customers. We lend about 3.8 billion a year uh, at last count. Um, we work with about 3,000 partners across both the insurance business, which is about 90% of us, and the specialist lending part, so the golf clubs and the schools, um, which is about 10% of us. So we are about 400 people uh, based, uh, well, we were based um, out of an office in Leatherhead and in Dublin. Um, but we have, obviously with the with COVID hitting two years ago, um, we, we sort of decamped to a, a sort of hybrid model. Um, and that for us has meant that I suppose within sort of seven days, we were all working from home using technology as we, as we sort of do almost every day now. Um, and what we use the office for, we've sort of rebuilt the office to a collaborative space. So as we start to talk about work that we want to go and build on and we want to bring people together, that's how we're really using that space rather than making it a, everybody get back into the office and drive to work again. So, but, and, I, and I guess also for you, because your business is so intermediated, 100% intermediated, right? Almost is ninety nine point. So has that thrown up extra challenges? Um, it, it has. It has definitely. I mean, we, you know, the start of this for sure. You know, everybody was trying to figure out how the heck do we all operate uh, in a new world, and that wasn't just us. That was, you know, whether that was a school. You know, with uh, I'm sure if you, you know, all those who have kids, you know, your homeschooling. What did that mean? Uh, versus, you know, golf clubs having to shut down. Versus, you know, brokers still trying to do business uh, and insurers still doing business. So everybody's had to adapt. And, and it certainly is what we've had to do. It's thrown up different challenges for us. The technology challenge was obviously the immediate one. Um, and then it's then I think you start to move very quickly into the people component, because I think, as we all know, you know, well-being is a massive issue. And that applies, you know, not just to my colleagues, but also applies to the, you know, the partners that we work with and applies to the customers that we serve. Okay. I think we might come back to that kind of well-being thing maybe a little bit later. Now, I asked uh, Dave to join his co-host on this today, because when we were talking about the challenges you have, the whole customer journey mapping and planning thing was an essential part of what, of what we discussed, and, and that's kind of what he does. So I'd like to bring Dave in at this stage to, to start looking, I think, probably at the specific challenges that you face in helping your product get sold. Do you, can you maybe just sort of lead us, lead us in a little bit by talking about some of those challenges? Yeah, so so typically we we serve two two distinct types of customers. Um, one type of customer I would call commercial, uh, so businesses, and then the other types of customers are personal customers. So so you or I buying, and I'll stick with the insurance example for the moment because it's I'll, I'll drop in some of the others from specialist lending. But you know specifically, if you're buying your own personal car insurance, you're, you're in, inevitably you're probably going to an aggregator site. You're probably looking for a policy which fits for 
the type of you know car you have, the type of lifestyle that you lead, you know, to fit with what you've got. And you're probably looking at the price too. And then from there, you're selecting who your broker is going to be or who your provider of your insurance is going to be. And then you're sort of through that journey relatively quickly. And, you know, like most people, time is time is a real challenge, right? So, you know, we want to move through these things. We, want to be, they want, we don't want to be drawn out. So in a personal space, it's critical for us that we fit really smoothly into the journeys of our partners because where you're where you're taking off journey to be sold an additional product, you want those things to be as smooth as possible and seamless as possible so that you get them back into the journey to complete the sale and move forward. So our, our challenge has been, and it's something that we're focused on, strategically we're focused on and have been for two, three, four years, is about how do we invest in our technology to make sure that we're as seamless as possible. And we, what we talk about is frictionless journeys. Now, that applies on a personal level, as I've described, but also on a commercial level, that's true too. It's a little bit more complicated. The journey is a little bit different. It's much more personal. So you can imagine the complexity of somebody who has a commercial business who might have fleet, might have multiple properties directors and officers, all sorts of other types of insurance that would go along with it, those specific insurance policies become a little bit more complex and a bit more personal. It's not as easy as saying, if you're buying car insurance, you know, are you parking off the road or in a garage or whatever? So it becomes a little bit more complicated. As those start to happen, we what we need to try and do and what, we, what we've been doing, investing in, is making sure we're as seamless as we can be for the partner when they're dealing with that end, with that end customer again trying to keep it as simple as possible. And that's been our challenge. It continues to be something that our partners are rightly demanding of because their customers are demanding of that. You know, we want to keep this as simple and as seamless as possible. So the customer gets offered, which is the key for us, 100% offer. We want all customers to have the opportunity to use a finance option if that's what they desire so they can spread the cost of the insurance. Just thinking of the the times when there is actually the sales element to it, so the non website where it's automatically part of the journey. What is the challenge you face with the brokers? Is it training them so that they've got all the training? I know with some of our B2B clients, they have a, a big issue with the big resignation. So they've lost a lot of their experienced brokers. They've got new brokers coming in who maybe aren't as trained in the products, in sales, in in the FCA, in all these different things. So they've got a challenge there. But they've also had real challenges with stopping their brokers from being in the dark through the journey. So when they've made a sale, there's usually anything that involves FCA and you can, you know, way more than me. There's lots of stages as you go through from sale in inverted commas all the way through to the sale being official and them getting their commission. And so there's lots of keeping people involved. I'm just wondering where the challenge is for you. So I think if we if we go back a little bit in time and not too far, but you know five, six, seven years ago, we've always been a, it's always been a relationship driven organization. So we've been working closely with those partners, trying to understand, trying to help, you know, doing things like integrating with software house partners, for example. So we, we've always been doing those things. But what I would say is slightly different is that probably around, as I say, seven seven years ago or so, we started to look at it from a from both the customer but the partner perspective, but in terms of what are the things that we could really go and make some changes to? And, you know, Dave, yourself, you mentioned training. So a key point of this was how do we make sure that we offer finance to everybody and how do we make sure that the people who are offering the finance are comfortable doing it? Um, they know they know what they need to do. They know what they need to provide. Um, they know how the steps work. And, and you know, they again, it, they give the customer, the end customer, confidence that this is something that's not just a bolt-on, it's something that's intrinsic to any insurance policy. So one of the things we did do, um, and I'm going to go back to sort of 2017, 2016, was introduce the thing called um, a capability team. Now that for us was a, it was a start, but it came from some insights having spoken with a number of lots, actually, of brokers who had said, if you look at the performance of our individual brokers within a company, within the company, you can see that there's real varying performance of the sale of premium finance or the offer of premium finance, in effect. And that came down to knowledge. It came down to understanding. As I said, it's that comfort. How, how comfortable do you feel about offering this compliantly? So what we did, though, was, was recognize that you know, we sort of, I suppose, threw it around to how we could help these guys um, beyond the sort of standard of, hey, here's some collateral which tells you what the product is and you know, here's a leaflet and here's a piece of information or whatever it was. And, and, and capability was the answer. So what we started to do was we hired four trainers um, who sit geographically um, across, the, across the UK who go in to partners on a regular basis to train them. And that's both personal and commercial. But we started by building some modules of this, the obvious one would be, you know, what is premium finance? How do you offer it? 
you know, um, dealing with objections, um, making sure the customer understands they're getting, you know, the hundreds fair value work and so forth. So that was part of the capability piece at the beginning. Um, it started to evolve a little bit because we sort of found that, again, that what we were inevitably talking to were people who were salespeople. So again, you know, how do you sell premium finance? But actually, that's not that far away from how do you sell anything? How do you understand features and benefits, for example? So we, we included some of those modules. And what, one of the things I suppose we, we did relatively quickly was recognize that we, we needed to stand up with some credibility. So we went through a process of becoming accredited for uh, CPD. So um, the partners, many, you know, many brokers, as with many professions, um, the CPD uh, component is important. So what we were then offering were courses that were CPD uh, accredited, which meant that you got your some of your hours, your learning hours that you needed to do. So we've we've evolved that through time, and again, the courses continue to evolve, and they they talk not just about the obvious of, as I say, offering finance and how do you use our system and how does that system work with somebody else's. But we started to extend it a little bit as well. So that was just one example of of, of how we sort of took this forward, um, and we continue to do it now. And it, you know, it's a really is a core part of our um, our proposition. How big are your brokers that you usually sell with? Are they large companies, or can they be everything? Um, it, it's there's complete spectrum. Mm. So um, brands you would know um, as most people would. So you know, Aon, you know, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, you know, Willis Towers Watson. Um, again, one of one of the biggest. Uh, we, you know, obviously there are, there, are, there are companies like Howden and Aston Lark and so forth. So they're the they're the very very big end. But then equally, you know, we deal with you know individual brokers who are on your high street. And again, it, the principles are exactly the same. It's you know they are experts in what they offer, which is the insurance. What we are giving to those guys is another string to the bow, so to speak, to say your customers choosing that you know your insurance is one thing. But actually, how do you pay for it is another. And you know, if I go if I go back and you know my my history, I used to work for RSA before I joined Premium Credit, and and I, I'm not insurance through and through. I'm a marketeer through and through. So, you know, I I didn't really pay a lot of attention to how once the once the premium or the, the insurance policy was identified and the proposition was given, you know, from the insurer to the brokers and those things were being offered. That that's kind of where I saw the end of the journey. And it's funny because having joined Premium Credit, I've now seen the the next stage. Um, of the chain, uh, you know, in great detail, and and it is it's making sure that you know the brokers, the individuals, have got the right information to offer to their customers to provide a, to provide opportunity. Our purpose is about proudly supporting our community of customers and partners, you know, in in creating those opportunities through payments. So it, it's a really important part for us to make sure we bring that to life. I want to talk about purpose a little bit later because um, I know that's another big initiative that you you've been involved with, and I think. I think there's a lot that our listeners can can learn from with what you've been through. I just want to wind back a little bit because you guys are both expert at what you do and we're assuming a lot of knowledge in our listeners. Um, so I wonder whether we could just start defining or explaining the process. How, how might our listeners go about doing what you've done, doing customer journey mapping, identifying areas of friction or identifying different touch points? Maybe a good start place to start would be defining what customer journey mapping is. Sure. So so the way I the way I look at it is we have an interaction. We, we talk to brokers, we deal with brokers, we deal with customers. What we have done is written that down. Where are the points that where we touch um, a broker or a broker calls upon us for something, some information, a customer does, a customer interacts with us, they sign up. What does that mean in terms of their welcome journey? What if, you know, and obviously we talk in terms of, and I think many people do sort of happy path and sad path, you know, the happy path being if everything works perfectly, it should go like this, you know, with the best will in the world, not everything works perfectly. So we also have to map for, okay, but if that doesn't happen, what is this, what happens next? What do we do? And, and how does that go? So, you know, simplistically, it's about writing it down. It's about starting at the point at which for us, it's the, you know, a customer, whoever that is, goes into the marketplace and says, I want to buy some insurance. They will then start a process which will be either um, going, they could go direct to, to an insurer or they'll go straight to a broker or they'll go to a uh, an aggregator like a, you know, compare the market, for example, which um, depending on what sort of insurance they're buying. So again, you know, if it's personal, it's slightly different. If it's commercial, it's, it's slightly different. But but broadly, that's the process they start. And that's when the journey starts. So once somebody gets a quote for, you know, let's say I'm trying to insure my car, um, I put in my details about my car. 
And then what we start to then try and do is where where, do the, where does that information go? So, you know, a big part of journey mapping, I was talking about training, which is only one little bit. But, you know, when you start thinking about the technology, you then think about, well, how do we smoothly move information um, around to the relevant people? So, you know, wouldn't it be nice as, as an example that when you put your information in as a customer, that information is is you don't have to put that in twice, right? Because that, that gets frustrating for all of us, I think. So it's how does that information get moved between, you know, the various different brokers or insurers who will quote. And then once they've done that, that's, you know, in effect, that's data being passed around. When you then get to the point of saying, okay, great, I found the policy I want. It's, you know, 500 pounds and, you know, it's with X bro- broker X or, or, or insurer Y. You then go onto their site and that's usually what happens. It takes you to their site and then you sort of get into the, okay, right. So are there any other things that you need? But one of them ultimately will be, right, the cost of your insurance now, Dave, is 500 pounds. And, and you know, it'll say, right, how do you want to pay? And, and that's when, you know, for us, we really come into it because that's where you say to the customer, you've got choices. You can pay all up front or you can go, actually, I don't want to pay my 500 pounds on day one. I want to pay, you know, I'm happy to pay, uh, let me say, a total of 520, 530 for the year, but I'll spread the cost of it. But from our perspective, what we're looking at is, where does where do all the pieces of information come in and then where do they then touch us so if they do click on that box it says yes actually i'd like to pay in you know 10 easy installments once you've got to that space then you get it then you get into the right okay so that information that you gave at the beginning which was your name address amongst other things how do we share some of those pieces so sorry that sounds maybe starts getting too detailed but but i guess what i'm going to is those pieces of information that move around are really really important because they help us understand you as a customer, but also we have to do assessments. So if you're a personal customer, there are requirements for us to do what we call an assessment of affordability. And so, and that, and that's the frictional bit. And so Dave, I'm interested here. So Adam and Prima Credit are obviously extraordinarily experienced and sophisticated in how they're doing this, but what about other companies? I mean, you see a lot of companies who you do this for, how, how sophisticated are businesses and is it different sector by sector? Hugely varies. I think one of the, there's a number of key reasons why CRM programs can fail. And one of the, the key ones is overcomplicating things. Um, it only needs to be as complicated as, as you need it to be. It, at its heart, CRM is simple. It's about understanding what you and your customers want, what they need, coming up with a fair value exchange so that your customers get what they need, you get what you need, and then you build journeys to communicate that to them effectively. And we've worked with one of our travel clients, I think, don't quote me, but I think there's about 24 different journeys in there with numerous comms and numerous channels. And so it's fairly hideously complicated. And then we've got some other B2B clients where there might only be two fairly simple journeys, but it's just maximizing each individual touch point and not thinking about just your marketing touch points. So exactly as Adam said, you've got you know, you've got email, you've got DM, you've got all those channels, but you've got your call center. You've got every single touch point where they are touching your brand or your broker's brand or any of those areas are a point where you can reinforce the relationship and get them to behave in a way that is beneficial to your company. But at its heart, it's about getting the value exchange, particularly at the moment with you know the way everything's gone. People have incredibly high expectations. So Adam was talking about frictionless. A lot of that boils down to time and things like that. It has to be as near to instant as you can get. You can't, they can't submit something and then have to wait a day or even half a day for a response. They want that response back instantly. Customers' expectations have gone up. Everything has to be frictionless, whether that's, as I say, time, whether we've got, whether we know enough about them to make sure that everything we're saying to them is relevant. And that doesn't just mean the overhackneyed personalization and naming very naff, naming clouds in creative and things like that, but knowing enough about them to be relevant. So we're actually talking to them in a relevant way. The biggest broker will have different needs to John in the high street of a small broker. They could well have different needs and they might need, you know, you talked about training. The small broker might have found useful some training on selling over Zoom calls when the lockdown kicked in, whereas the big guys have probably got that covered. So it's just making sure that you are being as relevant as you can. You're being proactive. The whole thing is easy, frictionless. Tech is there for a reason. I think, again, back to the complicating it. 
thing. I think all too often, and agencies like us are just as bad, but agencies and clients like to do things because they can, because the technology exists and the data exists. So we can do all this. We can do a million different things and personalize in a million different ways. But actually, when you dive into the detail, will it impact? Will it change their behavior? Will it show a profit? Often what you need to do is it's it's good to throw things out, but then you need to boil it down to what is going to make the most change and change things the quickest. Yeah, I think I, th- I was just going to say, Dave, on the back of that, I think for us, there are, there are probably two parts. You know, when I think about Aon, Gallagher's, Towergate, you know, they're all very, very big partners. And you're right, they are. there are very big differences between them. But the one thing that the one thing that remains true is that um, I, I, I don't see this as an end. I don't see there being a particularly strong end destination. And the reason being is because all consumers' habits change, um, consumers change, businesses change. So what we what we do is we we think about it in terms of continuous improvement. If you were starting out, you start with the big stuff, right? You've got to put some technology in place that interfaces with uh, that connects with our partners and connects with uh, our, our funding system. Let's say. But once you once you've done those things, you get to a point where actually the improvements you're making are tweaks. Some of them are very big tweaks, but they are in effect they are tweaks. They're making things smoother. So you know how do you pass that information across faster? You know we start you stop measuring it in terms of you know overnight as you said, and it starts being actually it's it's in milliseconds is how you how you're thinking about it. You know downtime gets reduced from twelve hours, let's say, to do an upgrade to two hours and 10 minutes of interruption or something, you know, that's what you start to think about. And then I think I completely agree. I think when you think about the, when I think about the strategy, which is, you know, I am the strategy um, marketing and communications director. So when I think about all these things connecting up, it's exactly how I see the world. Marketing is there to serve the organization. You know, we have a clear strategy, you know, we are targeting, trying to get that to hundred percent um, offer. And from that, we then think about our new partners. We think about existing partners and we think about new propositions and and that's how we how we then underpin those by the frictionless journeys and and how we bring technology to, to play. So they all serve a purpose and marketing has to do that. What we're trying to do is, you know, again, back to purpose. We have to be clear about why we why we get up every day. Why do we turn up? Um, you know, I know there are various different writers like, you know, Simon Sinek and other people who talk about the why and all that. But, you know, we do need to understand that and everybody needs to align behind that. And, you know, once you've set your purpose, you think about also then the values that you then want to bring people to bring in every day. And that's how you that becomes the way that you operate as an organization. So, yeah, no, it, this is completely connected um, to the way that we operate through the business for sure. And I think you made a, a really valid point at the start about it not being done when you've created it that it needs to be ongoing i regularly get asked by clients kind of what are the key reasons why this could fail when i'm talking to them about crm and probably one of the highest over time is that clients see it as a one-off strategic development and so we'll work with them we'll build the crm that's done tick we have crm sorted but exactly as you say that's never the case however much of a genius I am. I say that with a smile and however much a genius the clients are, we will create something. He's not smiling, listeners. He's not smiling. (laughs) He's being very serious. (laughs) But we could come up with something that is absolutely genius, but it will still only be at that point 90% correct. And it needs to be, you know, a program of testing and iteration and constant improvement over time. But then to your point, the world is ever changing. And so things will change them and it has to be improved. Correct. Yeah, completely agree. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com. And uh, Adam, thank you very much for handing me a segue on a plate, uh, <laughs> because obviously it's important to understand why we're trying to do all of this and trying to get the organisation aligned so that uh, so that everyone pulls in the same direction. Now I know that you guys have been on a purpose journey, uh, and you had a particular a- a- approach you took. Could you explain a little bit of that to us, please? Sure. Um, so. Uh, let me rewind for a second. So uh, back in June 2019, um, Tara Waite joined us as our CEO. 
and uh, incredible, incredible um, individual brings a lot of energy um, and a lot of um, clarity to to us as an organization and has has certainly driven us forward. um, No, no end, um, along with the rest of the executive team. One of the things that we kind of landed on the very beginning, though, was trying to answer that question of, you know, you start to think about a strategy and you think, okay, so strategy is about planning and the plan and where you're going to go. But there's there's something deeper than that, which says, but actually, why do you really exist? So back to that question of what is the why, right? So for us, we we started a process back in 2020 um, in broadly, let's say, April, May, something like that in 2020. So we did this remotely um, to then uh, crystallize our purpose. And I, and, and I say crystallize rather than to create, because I think from the work that I did, and I, and I certainly wasn't an expert in this space at all, I'm not now, but I've learned a lot more as I've gone along, um, is that you don't you don't so much create a purpose as you kind of uncover why you're there. Um, and it's it's a slightly different take on the world. And I, and, and I subscribe to it entirely. So we've always been there. And if somebody had asked me on day one, the what sort of what, what did we do and why did we do it? Um, you know, I'd have an answer for you, which would be very probably not technical, but very sort of matter of fact. You know, we offer finance like this and we do it because it helps people, you know, buy their insurance or spread the cost of their insurance, which in effect is what we do. But actually what we what we went through was a process where we brought the whole organization together and we, we had a little bit of external help where we created what we call home teams and we created this other group of people called pace, pace setters. Now, the pace setters were, in effect, the people who made sure that everybody's voice in every home team was heard through the organization. The starting point was we want everybody to be involved. You know, this is our company as a team, right? We're colleagues, right? That's what we want to do. And it didn't matter whether you were senior, junior, you know, in this part of the business or, or in a different part of the business, it made no difference at all. What mattered was that, you know, you're part of the organization and together, it's only the together bit that kind of makes us drive forward. So create, divided everybody up. The pace setters then were in effect the, uh, let me call them the sort of trainers, the guidance people that help those teams um, convey, ask them questions, ask them about, you know, this is the first question would be, you know, what's your individual purpose? What, you know, what, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Um, what, you know, why does that matter? And um, so we went through that process. We, we, over a period of time, we asked slightly different questions and we asked the home teams to think about, you know, where we were as an organization and what we were trying to do and why we were trying to do it. And it didn't matter that, you know, some people in the business worked in insurance, the insurance part, premium finance part, and other people worked in the schools element or the tax element or whatever. It didn't matter. What mattered was, you know, can we get to the bottom of why we're doing what we're doing? Because ultimately we're a lending uh, company. So over a period of time, we went through this, this I would call it a journey, definitely, and a, a, almost a baton pass. So questions asked of our people, they provided feedback. That feedback was then sort of consolidated and that consolidation then meant that we had uh, a better clarity of, you know, sort of by volume, where we were going, what were the things, you know, some people would use, you know, some words were exactly the same, some words were different, but some had exactly the same meaning, some words were completely different. And what we were trying to do was trying to hone to a point of ultimately writing a purpose statement. So when we got to far enough, we then started to get people to think about, um, we we got to think about other companies they admired, think about themselves, think about us but ultimately got down to a set of words. We put those on a page and then that became the baton pass between um, the pace setters and the executive team. And the idea was no one team there had the right to say, scrap that, ditch that. We don't like that. We set, it wasn't set from above is I guess the message I get, uh, I'd give is we, it, it was, it was iterative and it was building. So it was always the and rather than the, but so when we started to get into those conversations, some of the words changed. So they would pass a statement over to the Exco. The Exco would review that, think about that from from where they were looking at it. We'd set up already set out some principles that said, you know, look, we're not going to say that we are global because you know we're not, and and we have to have some some parameters that to operate within. But um, it allowed us to sort of go back and forth and enhance each time, and that was the and component. Ultimately. Um, it that that happened probably four or five times, and we we land on a statement which I sort of already said it, um, earlier. But you know, we proudly support our community of customers and partners, um, creating opportunities through convenient payments. That became our um, uh, our purpose statement. But every word in there is important 
and every every component of it is important. So the proudly part is about us. It's how about how we turn up in the organization, how we turn up every day. And then the community of customer and partners, we, we have a variety of customers and partners. I've talked about schools, I've talked about insurers, but also, you know, we have partners that we work with, technology partners that we work with, or software house partners that we work with. So it's how do we turn up there? Then we think about creating opportunities because that for us is, is, is the space of why do we exist? Well, actually, it enables somebody in a simple example to say, I don't want to pay 500 pounds or 1,000 pounds or 5,000 pounds on day one. Actually, I can manage my budget, my, my costs, my income better if I spread it. And, and the analogy we always, we always use is, or an example is one where um, you deal with a, you deal with, a, let's say, a company. The company wants to invest in um, developing, I don't know, um, uh, uh, wants to invest in a new sprinkler system, let's say. Um, well, it, that sprinkler system is, has a big cost to it. So does your insurance premium. What we would, what we get into the conversation is kind of going, but actually what you could do is if you finance it, you reduce the initial outlay of cost, you can still invest in the sprinkler piece. Oh, and by the way, the sprinkler piece will reduce your personal, your property insurance as well, because suddenly you've de-risked part of your business as well. So it's a small example, but but those are the sorts of things that we, that sort of enablement is, is where we sort of talk about the creation of opportunities. The last part of it, as I say before, is about this convenient payments, because ultimately that's what it is. We're making things convenient for people. So every word in that process, um, every word, sorry, in that purpose statement, every word that we, we, we debated was really, really critical. From us, from, from, a, from an internal process perspective, we then did live events where we were telling people how far we'd come and we were showing them the iterations. And then we did a, a big session, which was actually a joint presentation from Tara, our CEO, um, with a couple of the pace setters. And they talked through the journey. And I think that was critical as well, because from a communications perspective, you you can you can get stuck with it's from the top, the boss has said. And that's absolutely not what this was. This came from the ground up um, and it came through the organization, which also means that it has a stronger buy-in. And I just add, I'll just throw this in there, but at the end, we also then reviewed our values and put those into words and terms that, that work for us. So, you know, we talk we talk in terms of we've sort of come up with a a bit of a, you'll see the connection in a second, but we talk in terms of, you know, standing together, standing true, um, standing up, you know, those are critical to us and standing out. They, you know, they all link under the stand part, but actually it's it's about how we as individuals rock up every day. So that back to the proudly part. So it was, a, it was an amazing journey. Um, it was really, really incredible. Um, it was great to see 400 people contribute. Um, I think the 400 people felt engaged, which is kind of the key. And it's become, you know, you'll see it in, in any of the works that we do. We, we always keep harking back to, are we living this purpose? And our strategy naturally flows down through, um, through, uh, through, the, through the purpose as well. So all so, connected. So how are you making sure that, because I mean, one of the common problems when you come up with a purpose is usually two, and agencies often are the worst, that we'll come up with a purpose for ourselves as an agency. Say I would come up with a purpose for Burn. I'll think that's genius. I will put it on the wall, not really tell anyone about it. And then it's just up on the wall as a purpose. And so you, you've, you've done the first bit, which is make sure it's all communicated out to the business. And it sounds like that was a really effective way of, of doing that. How are you making sure that it does become ingrained in the business and, and flows through everything that you do, whether that's through PR, HR, teams, sure. training, et cetera? Yeah, sure, Dave. And, and, and I'll start by saying it's a journey because, you know, again, it's not something you can, uh, you, your example, uh, unprompted, but sticking it on the wall is, is a great, is a great example of how not to do it. Um, not, not least because we don't have a wall that we all see today um, <laughs> uh, for one, but, but actually, you know, in, in an old building that we had, we had all these words dotted around on the, um, on the walls. And what ends up happening is it classically becomes wallpaper. People just, you know, just breeze past it and they never pay any attention to it. It's also that's never the way that you're going to engage your people to see the opportunity or to or to, to realize the opportunity or to behave in a particular way. So what we, we've done, we did some things which are probably obvious and some things which are subtle. Um, obvious ones were things like um, we had an awards. Uh, we, we, we do um, a quarterly town hall and that quarterly town hall is uh, it's a live event because uh, uh, but we do it remotely because we're all obviously sitting where we are. Um but we changed, you know, we, we changed the awards, right? So so the awards became about our values. 
So we talk in terms of the values that we have here, um, rather than we talking in terms of, you know, things like, you know, be collaborative or, you know, the sort of classic statements that most people have, which is absolutely fine. But for us, didn't really align with what we would where we were trying to go with this. It does flow through. So I think when, when we then think about, you know, the way that, for example, we write press releases, you know, we think about the language that we use and we think about how are we representing the words, but also the deeds. And I think that that's kind of pretty critical, too. So as part of my remit, I've got um, product and proposition. And, and so some of the things that we've done are sort of, again, less obvious, but really important when we have we have a, a process, which is a uh, we have a basically a new, a new product proposition process that you know most organizations do you kind of you come up with an idea you sort of research the idea the idea gets you know costed or or or, or opportunity gets spotted and then you sort of move into a build pilot test and roll out right it's kind of a bit of a broad standard one of the things for us is that part of our initial process of product um idea is how does this tie with our purpose so we we actively ask ourselves that question because, and this is an analogy from somebody else, which is not mine, but I'm still going to steal for a second just to make the point. I was reading um, about a drinks company, and I, I can't remember for the life of me who it was, but it was a drinks company who came up with a new great idea for a new product, which was a fizzy, whatever it was, let's say, an old fizzy orange juice. I don't know exactly what it was, but um, loads of sugar in it, would have sold loads, kids would have bought it in their droves, you know, and off you go. Problem was, it then got to the point where you then get to the, the approval process and the, and the people step up and kind of go, right, OK, well, great. How does this align with our purpose to be, you know, um, uh, supportive of families, to be, you know, reducing sugar content? You know, you suddenly have hard decisions to make. And sorry, it's a very crude example, but it sort of shows you that you get to a point of saying, actually, that doesn't match with our purpose. And, and that is important to us. So when, when we think about it, we're asking ourselves the question about products and propositions. It's how does it align with what we're trying to do over here? And and because, our, as I said, all the words have important parts, you know, it's things like we we always, I mean, I always refer to to colleagues as colleagues, not not staff, not um, uh, people. You know, I refer to them as colleagues because that's exactly what they are for me. And that's how we think about the world here. I think about customers and I think about partners. Uh, you know, yes, there are different types of customers and there are different types of partners. But again, that becomes the language that we use through the organization. So some of it is very subtle um, in the words that we do. Some of it is is probably quite a lot more active in what we do. But again, it, it is a journey. And I think, you know, the one one place I would say it shows up probably most obviously on paper is as soon as you try and win new business, one of the questions which I would say um, used to be uh, the top of the list, which I don't necessarily think it is at the moment, but top of the list would have been, you know, how do your values align with ours if you're going in for a tender, right? So having something written down, which is clearly explainable and and demonstrates what you're trying to achieve. And again, links back into the frictionless journeys because we're talking about creating opportunities. It feeds through everything that we're doing um, is 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 critical. So, so that's actually written down. The reason I say it's probably not number one right now is because I think, and rightly so, um, sustainability and the impact of ESG is becoming becoming incredibly important um, to all organisations, and we're exactly the same. So we're on a journey there as well. And there are two questions that come up to us in pitches quite a lot as well. Is yeah, exactly that. How do the values align? Because I think people, it's important for businesses and people like people and like to work with people who have similar values. But definitely the ESG side of things is running through all new business that we're working on at the moment. And do you know what? You're now both teeing me up with perfect segues because it was at this stage that I was going to say, what does the future hold for us? But I guess the future is increasingly going to be about proving ESG credentials and thinking about sustainability. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things, again, I, I, I'm one of these people who I'm a bit of a sponge and I don't mind saying it. Um, I'm learning every day and I, I get involved in different things, which are not necessarily my my exact um, uh, purview, but um, I get sort of pulled in or I get asked to, to, to help out with something. And um, I've always been passionate about um, CSR. Uh, and, and I think we, you know, lots of organizations and, and we did the same. We sort of our CSR function was very much a philanthropic type approach. You know, how do we raise some money for a local X, Y or Z? But then we started to realize, you know, probably a couple of years ago now that we need to start moving into it's moving into a very different direction and we need to sort of go there. And I think the, the one of the points I'd make to the people listening is 
sustainability sounds like, and especially when you say ESG, I think a lot of people kind of just hear the the E bit. They hear the environmental part and think, oh, it's about being green. And, and yeah, that's part of it for sure. But it's not just that. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, it's about how do you deal with your uh, your people? How do you work with your people? And the social component of it is massive, um, as is the governance. You know, are you making sure that you're adhering to the things that you need to be doing? Which, you know, from a, for us as a regulated business, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's probably more straightforward because it's been long ingrained in us. But from a, from a, you know, one of the things I would say is it's not just about, you know, your carbon footprint. It is about that. It's carbon footprint. It's about emissions. It's about waste, of course. But it does think about, you think about things like diversity. You think about things like gender. Um, I mean, yesterday, you know, uh, I'm not sure when this goes out, but um, it, yesterday was International Women's Day. You know, how how do you as organizations, how do you, how do the people in your organizations stand in your organization and feel that they are part of the organization equally, just in the same way that everybody else is. And that's, that's critical. Now, you know, again, for us, we're 400 people. So we're not the biggest organization in the world for sure. And, you know, my past, well, I used to work for Barclays where we had 63,000 people, I think it was at the time. And for Citigroup, which is, you know, quarter of a million people, you know, it's, it's a huge place, but um, you, you, for us, we've, we've found ways and we're looking at ways and we're aligning with, um, uh, uh, standards. So people, uh, people may know this, may not, but you know TCFD or SASB, and sorry for the acronyms, um, and I won't try and tell you what they mean, but I would suggest you go look them up. Um, but in effect, what they what they are asking is that those are standards which they're saying that you as organisations should, should should uphold, right? So there are obvious things like you know anti-slavery. You know how do you make sure that you know people are not being taken advantage of in your supply chain? Now again, you know for us, we look at it and kind of go. What does supply chain mean for us? Because we don't produ- we don't physically produce a you know let's say a garment. We're not Nike. We don't have factories all around the world building stuff or creating stuff. We're slightly different. So you know the financial services is, is a little bit more intangible, but you know yet we still have you know paper in different places. We still have offices. We still have cleaners. We still have you know we, all the way through the organization. So it, it for us it was always about let's make sure we understand first. Um, and then we work out how do we build a plan. So we've built a roadmap, and, and I, funny enough, um, just today our annual report has just been released. And you know, if anybody um, genuinely would like to go and have a look at uh, the the sustainability and ESG component, it's a big part. I mean, if I compare it to you know you know uh, prior prior years and previous examples, you know, we're we're talking sort of eight plus pages talking through our environmental, social and governance components to our business. So it's absolutely where we need to be. And, and you know, you see this across any of those organizations I talked about with, you know, Aons or the Willis or the Towergate. They're all recognizing the importance of what they do. And 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 that will be a future for, for you know, for all of us. And we've got to pay attention to it. I think it was, I agree. I think it was heading in that way, you know, very definitely anyway. COVID has actually impacted on us all as human beings. And I think we've become a little bit less accepting of whether it's greenwashing, social washing, rainbow washing, whatever the right way of saying that is. Whereas in the past, it was a bit of a tick list that, you know, the the anti-slavery one is a really good example that always came up in any tender that we were doing. There was always an anti-slavery thing that we obviously don't. You tick, you tick, you tick. But it was very much of a tick list. And I think clients, suppliers, um, colleagues that we work with are all very much more demanding of us as an, a, as an agency and of our clients to actually be seen to ha- leaving, I don't know, footprints, the right word, but have a positive footprint. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, as I say that, that my tender comment, it comes up more and more um, and right that it should. And I think, you know, people are more discerning. I think people are able to be more discerning. Um, I think it becomes people can people's in people's consciousness, the whole concept of what does it mean to be um, sustainable um, is, is actually top of that list. It's it's not it's not no longer just this afterthought of you know uh, of, of individuals or companies. It's absolutely top of the agenda. And as you rightly say, David, it's, it's you know people will not allow people to greenwash. Um, there will be backlash, you know, all the time against those sorts of things, and rightly so. I think that's a pretty profound place for us to end today's conversation. I can't believe the time has passed so quickly. Um, but look, thank you very much indeed, Adam, for your wise words. We've had a, a really free ranging and wide conversation today, but all those things are so important. And um, so thank you very much for your time. We'd like to let you get back to your day job now. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> and- <laughs> that, thank you, guys. I really appreciate the time. We'll see you again.
Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow, that was a uh, very wide-ranging and very detailed conversation, Dave. Yeah. One of the things I liked was there wasn't buzzword bingo. I think all too often agencies are just as much to blame, but it can become overly complex and trying to overcomplicate things for the sake of it. And I really liked the way that Adam was boiling things down and trying to simplify it at all different stages. Well, I was particularly pleased about that because obviously one of the purposes of Unicorny is to create a body of learning other people can take stuff away from. So um, I am going to dig in a little bit of detail. Um, to some of the things we discussed, because I might need you to help me understand a little bit more. Um, But just to say that um, if you go to selbyanderson.com and you find this podcast on there and you'll find that under Insights Podcasts, I'm going to put a link to Premium Credit's annual report that he referenced just before the end of the interview. So you can have a look at the ESG pages that he was referring to. So that's going to be on selbyanderson.com or if you get stuck, ping me on LinkedIn. Now, I'm going to, I'm, this is in no particular order because I was, there was so much discussed. I was writing stuff as we went, but there was one thing I thought was really interesting when he, it was when he was talking about purpose and the process they went through. Language is so important and language anchors culture. And he spent a lot of time talking about the process he went through of really defining those words carefully so that they would help define deeds. In in your life in agency, do clients give you time to think about this or is this very much the preserve of somebody who is like a, he's a strategy as well as marketing, right? So he has a long, a long outlook and he has to deliver in the short term. What's your experience in agency about things, the importance of language, I guess, is where I'm coming from. Language is essential in, in everything. If you're boiling it back to see her again, what we're trying to do is change people's behaviour. And you can't do that just with pretty visuals, etc. It needs to be really engaging and persuasive um, copy. It varies by client and by brand, if I'm honest. Some companies really see the value in really well-crafted, strategic, creative copy. That, and they can see the way that you've built the messaging hierarchy, the value exchange, and they can see the ultimately whenever we're writing copy, effectively we're trying to tell a story, whether it's a story in one communication, for example, a TV ad or a press ad or a DM pack, or if it's a series of social, then it's the series that's trying to tell the story. We're storytellers, effectively. And some clients love that and really engage with it and get very passionate about it and want us to take the time. Some clients, I haven't got one at the moment, but you know, retail clients specifically are often very fast-paced and often want no, we need the copy now, we need this, we've got a deadline, we need a deadline. We're professionals, we can do copy quickly. But when it is the the more strategic the copy, the more particularly purpose-led copy it is, that has so much room for semantics and misunderstanding. And even with obvious, to me anyway, words like CRM, one of the stages that we do within, if we take on a new client and they ask us, can you review our CRM program? Is it effective or can we build a new one? The first thing we'll do is try and get the the senior C-suite clients in a room and actually go around the room and say, what does CRM mean to you? Because if I asked you, Dom, you would give a different answer to me than to even people that work at Burn would all give a slightly nuanced, different answer. And if as a company you've misunderstood that and you, your C-suite haven't all agreed that, you're going to end up with your ladder leaning against the wrong building and you're climbing like crazy and then you get to the top and it's not where you want it to go. So, yeah, words... It's everything that we do. I think that's, that also connects very, very neatly to the second bit that, that I was struck by. And he said it, actually, he said it right at the beginning of the, again, piece he was talking about purpose, but it connects so well. He said, you don't create a purpose. You uncover why you're there. Presumably, you don't create a customer journey. You have to, un, you have to, un, you have to identify it before you can then change it. Because you could set out, presumably, to create as many steps as you like on a customer journey, but it's not relevant to the customer, it's just not going to do it. It Maybe, again, this is semantics, to be honest, but I think the customer journey will be there. So if the, if you are purchasing something, so, you know, with Adam, if you've gone through a broker, et cetera, et cetera, that journey exists. But then what Burn can do is we can help help expand on that customer 
process almost, the customer journey, and turn it into a communications journey that actually you are making sure that each of those within the journey you've got set, there might be 10 moments of truth between that. So you've got the point of purchase, you've got the point when you could have clicked, yes, I want to take out additional insurance. You've got the stage where you get the paperwork, you get the state, you've got all those different stages. That's the journey. But what we can do is make sure that at each of those stages, it's telling the appropriate story and we're pulling them through and they're seeing value in what they're getting and they feel that they're being pulled through, whether that's the consumer or B2B. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So those annoying emails you get when you sign up for something that don't seem relevant at all basically haven't been through a filter like you've just been describing. They haven't had the creative thought put into them. Yeah. I, th- I think all too often email, email definitely serves a purpose and it's vitally important. I think there are instances where email can be neglected because email is cheap you can do email quite cheaply and you can get it done quite quickly and there's lots of systems out there and it's often particularly the service-led emails can be neglected and I think even with a simple you've submitted x y and z that can always include other messaging and just positive reinforcement okay and and one last thing actually to wind up today's um, podcast and it's a very simple question who should be doing this process of customer journey mapping and thinking about CRM? What kind of companies? All co- companies. Every, every single company out there either is or should be doing it. Um, I mentioned in the podcast that one of the things that companies get wrong and is one of the, the key reasons why C- CRM fails is that it's overly complicated and become too many variables. But if you are a company the size of a big one, Mercedes, don't know why I picked Mercedes, then their journeys are going to be hugely complicated. And they've got all those different stages from test drive to purchase to they've probably got 50 different journeys easily within that stage. But you could also be if you are a tiny, small tailor, if you are, I regularly get asked by clients, can you give me an example of who does the best CRM? I would always describe it as being forget companies. Think of the old school tailor on the high street. When his customer comes in, he, he's got his mental black book and he knows that that is John whoever. Hi, John. Oh, I've got this amazing suit. It would fit you perfectly with that tie and that shirt that you bought last week. That's, that's a journey. That is a customer journey. And, um, and so everyone needs to do it. I guarantee you half the people listening to this aren't doing it. Where should they start? Um, by calling me. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Strange. How, how about um, how about if 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 journeys aren't invented, they're uncovered. Um, how about they start with the big bits? It's. I think the first thing that, and whether you're whether you're working with an agency or whether you're doing it internally, I think the first thing the process would be to set yourself up for success and make sure that the the right people, the company, are behind it. Make sure that I touched on it again on the in the podcast that you've defined CRM correctly, that everyone knows what it is. And then get the right people around a room and have a kickoff session where you're discussing it, working out the objectives. What do we all want to achieve? And objectives can dramatically change where you go. And then it's doing an audit of what you've got, what you've got now. As you touched upon, everyone has a customer journey. It's just whether it's been made the most of. So audit your customer journeys. What, what have you got? What have you don't got? Do some gap analysis and work out how you can maximize that. And then it's going through the process of data, analyzing your data, trying to understand what makes, whether B2B or B2C, understand what makes your customers tick and not just the the black and white data. Try and, I'm waving my hands around, which doesn't help on this, um, add a bit of color to that data so that you actually know that I'm Dave, I live here, I'm into running, I've got a weird obsession with Garmin watches. You know all of this information about me and so we can be more relevant in the way that we talk and know how clean or not clean your data is. You have a lot of brands out there who think their database is 10 million people. When you actually audit their database and you go in, you'll have, they haven't cleansed it for however long, so they're wasting a huge amount of money on gonaways and deceased. They've also got a whole lot of people in there who aren't, haven't effectively GDPR opted in and they're just sitting there wasting. They think their database is this big, but it's just a massive wasted opportunity. So there's process you can go down. And once you've done that, it's diving into proposition, messaging, segmentation, making sure you've got the right tech. Then it's into the journeys that we've talked about. And by journeys, it's those communication journeys to making sure that we're, we're pulling the right levers and dials at the right time. 
Thank you for listening. That is the end of today's show. If you would like to subscribe to us, please do go to your favorite podcast outlet and you will find us there. If you want to be on the show, my name is Dom Hawes. Look me up on LinkedIn, connect, and I would love to talk to you. This show is put together by Selby Anderson. We find and unlock hidden value. And the show is recorded at Turnmill Studios, which you can find at turnmillstudios.co.uk. See you next time. Well, I can't believe we are already at the end of season one. Five episodes, five amazing guests, and some simply stunning co-hosts. So I'd like to say a very big thank you to my co-hosts, Dafina Grapci-Penny, Samantha Losi, Renee Edwards, and of course, today's host, David Rolfe. Thank you, guys. It literally wouldn't have been possible without you. Uh, and I'd also like to say a very special thank you to the series producer, Nicola Fairley, who works tirelessly in the background uh, to do the LinkedIn promotion, to get the guests on board, produce the shows, and generally pull the whole thing together. And finally, a very big thank you to the wonderful team at Unity, especially Jenna, for all her help with the branding, the graphics, and generally making us look probably better than we are. So thank you very much, folks, for listening, and we will see you very soon for season two of Unicorning. This episode is sponsored by Selby Anderson, the agency group that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. Selby Anderson's agencies serve global clients in financial services, enterprise tech, channel, industry, utilities, pharmaceutical and biotech. If you want to win the future, find out more at selbyanderson.com.